as Caroline mentioned, um, I think our panel is going to talk a lot about um, about sort of the paths we've taken getting to Oxford and then post-Oxford and what we're doing now. So I will mainly be talking about um, sort of, I, I work in public health and some observations I've been making along the lines of improving the concept of cultural competency within the public health sphere um, with an example and then sort of the influence I've taken from mental coffee. So a little bit about me. Up until this point, I did a BA in anthropology at the College of Worcester in Ohio. Um, and I don't know how many of you know about what four-field anthropology is, which is slightly different from social anthropology in the UK. And it covers sociocultural anthropology, biological anthropology, linguistic, and archaeology. Um, and then after college, I went to Washington, D.C. the first time and worked at a think tank doing health policy. And I have it in quotes because I learned very quickly that most health policy in the political setting really has nothing to do with health. It has a lot to do with economics. It has a lot to do with coverage. It has a lot to do with delivery systems, quality, which obviously all of those things ultimately affect health. But I was really bored, actually, with most of it. So I came here, and I did an MPhil. Uh, my dissertation looked at TV policy among Australian Aboriginals in the Northern Territory, mainly looking at concepts of well-being and space and how those were played out in national policy. And since then, I've been working at an organization called the Trust for America's Health, which, is, which I'll talk about in more detail shortly. My other job, my night job as I refer to it, is working with the Organic Health Response, which as many of you already know, was co-founded and is co-directed by one of our classmates, um, Chad Salman, who's currently in med school at UC San Francisco and is actually about to take a year off to go and be at OHR for a whole year. Nadine has done some work, um, Stan did some work early on, Jason Nagata and several other alum are highly involved with the organization. It's a CBO based on Ntengano Island in Lake Victoria, Kenya, um, focused on sustainability and social solidarity around combating AIDS, and I'm happy to talk about that more outside of this, if you have any questions. So, um, Trust for America's Health, as you can see, is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to saving lives by protecting health and making disease prevention a national priority. So, I laughed a little bit when Elizabeth was talking about the real world because Washington, D.C. really isn't the real world. We are very much in a bubble. Um, I thought the cartoon was cute. Um, and it's very hard to break into that bubble and to understand what's going on. So the organization was founded in 2001. Um, we were mainly originally funded to look at environmental health issues. That evolved into looking at pan pandemic flu and preparedness. And now we've evolved into one of the top public health organizations in the US. Um, we're a trusted source of information. People use us for policy action and advocacy. Um, the main ways that we advocate are through promoting prevention, protection as in um, holding public officials accountable when it comes to public health, and striving for healthy communities so that, as we like to say, the healthy choices are the easy choices. So today, TIFA deals with a large array of topics, as you can see. Just as a little side information, the Affordable Care Act, well actually, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, which was um, enacted into law in March of 2010, um, has a large 
chunk of funding that's mandated for prevention and public health. So yes, most of the law relates to coverage, and that's probably what you heard about in the news at all. Um, but what we deal with is this chunk of funding that's going to be promoting a whole new array of prevention programs in the United States. The main areas that I work in are community prevention, obesity, and AIDS, and then um, dabble in a few other things. So what, what TIPA does? The prevention funding in ACA was our idea, and that happened before I got there, but that was pushed through into the law based on our lobbying arm. And then we put out a series of larger annual reports, F as in fact, it's our obesity report, which looks at the state of obesity in the United States every year. Our, it's actually coming out in two weeks. We also have our ready or not report, which looks at um, emergency preparedness in the broadest sense, so making sure that communities are prepared. And then we also have special reports based on different projects. Um, I've worked on hepatitis and an HIV report most recently. So now we get to what I actually do. Um, and looking, thinking about some observations that I've made. I work on our policy development team, which basically means I'm paid to do research on our different topics and then theoretically come up with policy measures related to those items. But the way we do that is through convening process. And the observations that I've been making is that these convenings are really a good way to address cultural competency, which has become almost like an item that needs to be checked off a list. So when you're in a public health setting, people say, yeah, we need to talk about cultural competency. Someone mentions it at a meeting, it gets checked off, they move on. But generally, that means having someone who speaks Spanish or whatever other language needs to be spoken within a given community, but doesn't necessarily look at all of the other issues around, as we all know, um, the interaction between someone's culture and their health. So that's the general definition that we work with related to cultural competency. So taking that in mind, under the ACA, there are community transformation grants, which are being administered by the CDC. And the idea of these grants is that they will be given to communities to literally transform themselves. And the idea is that they will be able to produce whatever programs they need um, with whichever disease or situation they're facing, and they can use the funds as they will. So a lot of the current recommendations that we've been working on fall within these community transformation grants. So when we talk about community, we talk about it in several different dimensions. So you have both the internal communities, which are the disease-specific communities. Um, the AIDS community is very strong in the United States, the obesity community, diabetes, et cetera. And then you also have the external, sort of broader community, the, the people who are affected, who aren't just the experts in a given field. And then we also like to think of communities both as geographic communities and demographic communities. So you'll have a specific town or city that you're dealing with, or you'll have a group, a population. Gay men, Latino women, what have you. So these, these convenings, what actually happens? So the convening process, I often go, especially when I started, I went into them thinking of them as sort of mini ethnographies because we gather a small group of people together, usually 15 to 30. Um, they're community members, but they are diverse community members. So we have the academic experts, we have the government officials dealing with these topics, but then we also have CBO leaders, religious leaders, people who are affected by the conditions. We bring them all together at one table to talk in a facilitated setting, which provides a loose structure, but also allows people the ability to talk openly and freely 
about what we're discussing. So, all right, so after we have these discussions, usually there's more than one per topic um, based on sort of how the first conversation goes. But from that, my team then sits down and we literally take the notes or the transcripts from the meetings and we develop the, rec the sort of first round of recommendations. Then that document then goes out to everyone who participated in the meeting and we have a back and forth about what they want represented, what recommendations they want. And we don't, we basically we don't make the documents public facing until we have gotten the go ahead from every single person who's participated. So we wanna make sure that people are seeing that what they said is being represented and that they sort of generally agree what, with what else is being said. So that, we found that this comes with as close to a consensus as you could get on a, on a given topic. So and then what do we do with those documents once, once we've gotten those recommendations? We then pass them off to our lobbyists um, who take them and meet with legislators, meet with the White House. We use them to further inform issue briefs on given topics. And we spread them with the broader public health community. Okay, so an example of a recent project that we've worked on. Um, we're actually in the middle, sort of moving into the second phase of an HIV prevention program. Um, as you'll see, it says that the original program was HIV prevention for men who have sex with men. And as I was telling some people earlier, the, the terminology has now shifted to HIV prevention for gay and bisexual men. And I, depending on what you know, MSM captures people who are not gay identifying, incarcerated populations, sort of a broader population than gay and bisexual men. And it's been really interesting to watch the back and forth within the community that they can't decide which terminology they want to use. So we, we switched to gay and bisexual men because they, we thought that that's what they were wanting because that's what they're telling us. And now we have people coming back and saying, no, we want it gay. So, so that meeting, our first meeting last fall had a diverse group of people. We had some White House and CDC representatives. We had a wide array of AIDS activists, both HIV positive and HIV negative men. And out of those, that discussion, we basically developed a set of recommendations that focuses on structural policy changes to address prevention. So looking at things as broad as anti-gay ballot measures, like marriage and anti-discrimination, making sure that communities are physically structured in a way that makes it easier for men in this population to be tested, and things like that. So now we're moving into the second phase of that project, and I don't know how many of you, probably a few of you know about the study that came out earlier this spring on treatment as prevention which um, basically found that in discordant, couple, discordant couples where one partner is HIV positive and one is negative, if you put the HIV positive person on ARTs immediately, as opposed to putting them on ARTs when their CD4 count goes down, um, it cuts transmission to 96% reduction in transmission, which is huge. So we are now having to grapple with how do you deal with prevention from the treatment point of view, and this is really shifting the whole whole scope of dealing with HIV prevention. So, um, the influences I see that I got from medical anthropology. Um, I actually got a little slack for putting in something about the evidence base from my, my folks back at, in Washington. Um, but I, I think it helps a lot that I'm able to think outside of the biomedical paradigm. And that sometimes, you know, things aren't evidence-based. Sometimes it's observed. And that's oftentimes harder for 
for some coming from more traditional public health backgrounds to see. Um, I'd like to think that I'm thinking critically when developing policy measures and thinking more about how it's going to work for specific populations and as opposed to the whole country. It's very hard, in my opinion, to have overarching national policies that actually are effective for everyone. Um, and then understanding and acknowledging the interaction between biology and culture. Um, I've had some funny stories um, of interacting with, we have a head writer who's a journalist by trade and it is just really hard to talk to someone about certain interactions and I'm, they're about bodily functions and I will be happy to share those with another time. Um, so finally, sort of the challenges and benefits that I've experienced. I'm the first anthropologist that the organization has ever had and initially, apparently, they didn't want to hire me because a lot of people didn't really understand the background that I had and what medical anthropology was, but luckily, they did hire me. Um, and since then, there's been a learning curve on both, on both parts. For me, I've had to learn a lot about traditional public health, the legislative and budgetary process and language, um, and it is, it is a whole different world, and it's, it's complicated. Um, for them, um, a lot of it is understanding that I'm going to ask questions that might make people uncomfortable, I'm going to ask questions that are annoying, I'm always going to ask questions, um, and, and hopefully they're getting some benefit out of that. And finally, I've put, in, I've put in the suspension of disbelief. I often am sitting in meetings and we'll, we'll just be getting really frustrated that people aren't seeing sort of a more holistic approach, and I start jotting down all these questions, and then I go, take a deep breath. Remember what setting you're in. Remember, remember where these people are coming from. And so then I only ask sort of one annoying question instead of the whole list of why aren't we thinking about it this way? Why aren't we doing this? Um, and that's something that I've definitely had to learn to balance out. So I'd like to thank all these folks, and that's it.